I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. I'm delighted to say that this week our very special guest is the one and only Kate Winslet. Winslet's new movie Ammonite is currently available on a range of streaming services and her new TV miniseries Mayor of Easttown comes exclusive to Sky Atlantic and the streaming service now from the 19th of April. Kate, how lovely to have you on the podcast. You won't remember this, but we met once and it was back in the days when I was the film critic for Radio One, when my hair was dark and I was thin, and I and I interviewed you. Came in and I interviewed you in what was essentially a shoe cupboard um, about sense and sensibility, and uh, we talked about heavenly creatures. And it was it was that was it. That was the only time you and I have met. So how lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you too. And you know, I have to say that I, my hair was probably also dark in those days, and I was probably also thin. So so snap. <laughs> it was yeah it was back it was back in the 90s and I think I probably said something like I think you have an extraordinarily brilliant career ahead of you and you probably went no 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 it was anyway how Aww. how how things have worked out so look Aww. there is a lot to talk about let's start with your most recent project which is this brilliant TV show Mary of Easttown one of the things that's happened to me during lockdown is that I've started watching television which I didn't for years years I didn't watch television then during lockdown I've done all of The Wire I've done all of Breaking Bad I've done you know all, just all the classics so I've seen the first two episodes of Mayor of Easttown completely gripped absolutely in it describe for me your character and kind of set it up for people who haven't yet seen any of it Okay, so Mayor of Easttown, uh, Mayor spelt M-A-R-E, it's a, a name, um, my name, the character in the show, and it is a seven-part series set in, in a real place that does exist, Easttown, in Delaware County, just outside of Philadelphia, and for those who don't know, Philadelphia is a couple of hours from New York City. And it is essentially a story about community and family and the rhythms of a small town and the overlapping of histories and friendships. And at the heart of it is the woman I play, Mayor Sheehan. She is in her mid-40s and she's a sergeant detective who is dealing with a huge amount of personal crisis and grief that unravels as the story unfolds. And in episode one, there is a, a murder of a local girl who we all know, and it falls to Mare to find her killer, as well as solving an outstanding crime that is ongoing, connected to another local friend. And all eyes are on her. And she's a woman who has lived in this town her entire life. She knows everyone. They all know Mare. They all call on her for everything. And she has to keep it together day in, day out, whilst quietly 
suffering inside. And um, it's a, it was a very intense role to play and, uh, and a terrific, terrific, almighty thing to, to be a part of. And I'm, I'm very excited about the show, actually, I have to say. And I don't normally say that about my own, my own stuff because I don't want to tempt fate, but I do really love this show. Well, I'm, I'm not just saying this. I've literally just been sent episode three just before we spoke, and I am desperate to watch it because I absolutely love the first two episodes. One of the things I, I love about it so far is it has a kind of brooding atmosphere of internecine secrets that really kind of gets under my skin. Tell me a little bit about the setting in which it takes place, because as somebody of my age who kind of thinks of, you know, thinks back to Twin Peaks and, you know, all these areas in which there's lots of stuff bubbling up from under the surface. What's going on in that town? Well, in that town, I mean, you know, often I think with small town crime dramas, you know, there's this sense of kind of some blackness or something corrosive bubbling away underneath the surface. And actually in our show, that's not the case at all. It is a tight community of really decent people trying to get by, you know, trying to repeat traditions and hold on to ritual and rhythm because those are the things that that keep them going. And so 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 East Town, it's a it's a place, as I said, outside of Delaware County, it's very close to where Brad Inglesby, the writer creator and showrunner um, actually actually grew up and he wanted to write something that for him felt close to home and that sense of community is palpably felt throughout the show and of course that can both be a blessing and a curse you know when you're so familiar with the neighbor that as a as a sergeant detective they call you because they can't get their computer to work or because their cat has thrown up on the stairs you know th those things happen in towns like that and and I think in the time that we live at the moment there's a huge amount to be said you know when we're reminded by television and, and good TV drama the importance of family and yeah you can't always choose who your family are and you know you don't always want to be in that community every single day but actually sometimes it is the glue that holds you together and in Mare's case it's absolutely the glue that continues to hold her together because she is very much on the brink of of coming apart at the seams. The East Town Police Department received a call reporting a dead body in Creedham Creek. We've decided to bring in a county detective to assist with the case. How do you like working with my mom so far? We're just getting started out. Any tips? Lower your expectations. Should we do this outside? No. All right. Let's go. Hey, hey whoa, whoa, whoa. Mayor, what's, what's happening? She knows what's, what's happening, on, Tony. Okay? She knows. Mayor, All right, let's go. Are you friends with these people? Yeah. Why do they call you Lady Hawk? I made a shot in a basketball game. Must have been some shot. Around here, yeah. The terrible events of this past year have ravaged this community. Yeah? Who did this? You get this son of a bitch. Because if you don't, I'll kill him myself. There's a wonderful scene in episode two in which she comes out to her car and because of the ongoing investigation, because there's been a murder in the first episode, because of the ongoing investigation, the father of somebody who may or may not be a suspect aggressively approaches Mare and they basically have a kind of a shouting match which in which she's basically saying look I know who you do just back off and then it ends up essentially with the mother saying I'll come and have a cup of tea and there is that weird thing about all the way through there is the police personality but there is also the fact that everybody knows everybody and into this comes a cop from outside detective from outside who says well the fact that you know everybody that's a good thing, isn't it? But actually what we've seen already is it's a complicated thing because you have to deal with people on two different levels. 
That's right. Dealing with people on two different levels. And the thing about Mare that was so was one wonderful to be able to play and I have to be honest too Mark you know this definitely is the most challenging part I've ever played in my life um, and, and, and a lot of the reason for that is because of these juxtapositions of things the entire time so on the one hand Mare is really lovable but she's also utterly loathsome she's morally really sound and sometimes morally so corrupt she's you know she's disgusting and that she can be completely charming she's funny she's miserable and at the heart of it all of course is this sort of this griping uh, um, crisis and grief that I won't go into too much now that is connected to mental health in her own family and and that was the thing that had to drive her because her past is informing her present and and living with that every day and dealing with multiple personalities all of the time as Mare did um, was a was a real balancing act and you know we also were very aware that because there are some some tricky themes throughout the show um, we had to provide moments of brevity. And so the relationship that Mare has with her mother, Helen, played by brilliant American actress named Jean Smart, who lives with Mare. So you have a, a mother, a grandmother, and then Mare's daughter. So three generations of women living in this one home. And Mare and her mother have these caustic, you know, fights. They fling verbal grenades at one another that, you know, at times are, it's truly hilarious to watch and was an enormous joy to play. There was room for manoeuvre, plenty of improvising and, uh, and shit flinging. And it was, um, it was, it, it was a lot, a lot of fun. We always really lent on those moments because, you know, boy, we, we needed them. And also we felt that the audience would need them too. You know, we, we, we sort of, we, we wanted to give the audience, you know, the right to kind of laugh as well. As well as cry, which I which I I hope both of those things will happen throughout the show. Did you look to anyone as an inspiration for the character of Mare? Was there anyone or any anybody who influenced the way in which you played that character? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely did. Um, I- you know, there were there were there were various different stages of the kind of preparation of putting her together. There was the you know, there was the obvious kind of technical side of understanding the work of a sergeant detective in a small town. Things like gun training. You know, I shadowed a, um, a narcotics undercover cop, and you know, a variety of different actual technical things that were enormously useful. And I worked closely with two different police departments. Um, but really digging into um, the the sort of the more struggling side of Mayor's character in terms of the mental health aspect. So I spent a lot of time with, you know, with real, real people. I worked with a grief therapist on that. But there was one woman, a woman named Christine Blaylor, who is, she is a cop and she went to the police academy when she was 22 years old as a single mum. She's from Delaware County. And Mayor was not, not based on her because that wouldn't be the accurate thing to say. But she was a great sounding board for the writer Brad Inglesby from the outset. And she became my absolute go-to woman. And so I worked with her throughout the prep process, which for me was about five months. And then we were shooting Mare in the end for nearly 16 months because of COVID in the middle. And so uh, so I, when I started playing Mare, I was 43 and I had turned 45 by the time we wrapped. So I lived with this character for, for, for a very long time, the longest time that I've ever played a, a role. And, and it's been a really bizarre experience because I, you know, I thought as an actor, you know, I've been doing this job now 28 years. So you and I probably met in a shoe cupboard, you know, 28 years ago or something. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I love my job. I do still find it incredibly rewarding and, and it gets more and more challenging for me all the time because I think the stakes just get higher, quite honestly. But with Mare, 
I, I have had the rug swept out from underneath me because I have had a very hard time letting go of her and sort of, of move, moving on from her. And as the episodes unfold, you will see why. Um, and it has been quite hard. And as I said, creating that grief and kind of emotionally charging myself up for those particular scenes in ways that were very specific and much more intense um, for me than anything I've done before because I had to sustain them for such a long time, you know. Um, yeah, anyway. Actors, to, actors talk about specific things that be, that become kind of like a, you know, a talisman or a touchstone for a character. Um, I have a tin ear most of the time, but she has a very distinctive accent mm -hmm. What is it about her voice that is so distinctive? So the Delaware County dialect, so there are lots of American accents, you know, there's, you know, um, I mean, I could riff on a few, but I won't because I always think it sounds twatty when actors do that. But, but the, but the, <laughs> but the. <laughs> hey, listen, feel free. <laughs> no, but, you know, there are sort of, there are, there are generic kind of, I don't know, uh, mainstream middle America accents. And then, you know, there's Southern and then there's the kind of a Californian drool, you know, where the rhythms are different. They go up and down like that. But, you know, a Delco dialect, the O is really pronounced. It's, it's the, the yeah, O it's sound. It's almost like a there's almost like a you it's almost like a Canadian Scottish thing in there. What is what am I, what is it's that? It's a Canadian Scottish thing, quite honestly. Oh, I mean, like no, bingo, right no, there. there. We go. It's it's an odd sound, you know. Go home. I want to be on my own. Leave me alone. It's a strange strange sound, but also their eye sound. You know, rather than saying I like my bike, they say I like my bike. So there's a very slight swing to it that is quite noticeable, but it can also be overdone. So for me, I mean, it's the same with any dialect, really, and I, I love doing accents, but, but for me, the biggest challenge always with any accent is to learn it so well, to do it in your sleep, to the point that you for, not only forget that you're doing it, but hope that no one's kind of noticing you doing it. Because I, I hate when you can hear an actor like doing a voice, you know, and I just never want to be able to have people hear me doing a thing. Um, and it can be quite a, it can be quite a, um, uh, I don't want to say coarse because it's not a coarse sound to listen to, but it's so it's so different. It's so odd to like a, you know, like a New York accent, for example, that, um, yeah, so I just I spent a lot of time with the locals. I did work with a dialect coach because, you know, I never claimed to be good enough to teach myself anything like that. Um, but it, I, it was just something I had to do every day. I just had to work on it every single day. I'd get in the car, go to work, and I'd have my, you know, dialect samples in my ear on the way in and on the way home again. And, you know, and it was just, uh, just, just part of it, really, just part of entrenching myself in that in that space because how they sound is also part of who they are and they are very proud of who they are these people in east town and that was very important to hang on to i can feel it this expectation from people to be something i don't think i'm good enough to be hey they think you're a hero film fool you're a lot of things i don't like but you're not a fool it might be a good thing to step away. I know what you've been through, and I know you're worth saving. Recommit yourself. I'm gonna find out everything. Everything. Yeah, I mean, I want, to, I want to stress that, you know, me bringing up the accent is not in any way a criticism of it, because, I mean, for one of my closest friends is a, is a dialect coach, and I'm obsessed with the way in which 
thought process processes are kind of reflected in the way in which you speak and i there's something about that o sound to me it sounds it's almost it's homely and it's strangely kind of small tone but it's but it's also slightly alienating which is great because it means you're in a you're in an area that you don't quite know and it doesn't just feel like a bunch of people acting being in an area they don't quite know it feels like you're actually in a different environment which is why when the guy pierce character comes in you know he is from outside and one of the first things he says is he's propping up a bar is this a good place to have a beer yeah. and everything about the way he talks tells you that he's you know he's he's from out of town obviously you've worked with guy before yes i have and i was very lucky to work with him again um i mean he's just he's just terrific my god i mean we just got so lucky that he came along and played and played richard who is mayor's love interest um and uh, and we actually we actually had a huge amount of fun because our scenes were shot during the kind of post-COVID time. So we had lots of daily protocols and so on and so forth. And Guy and I had, a, there's, a, there's a couple of, you know, intimate scenes, shall we say, between the two of us. Well, you know, what do you do with two actors who have intimate scenes together and it's COVID? Well, you quarantine them together and you put them in a house together. So Guy and I quarantined together for two weeks, which was absolutely hilarious. Um, and, and all we did every day, of course, was just learn our lines. Um, actually, it pretty much was, to be honest. And then we lived together and we ended up living with um, Jean Smart, who plays Helen, and Angari Rice, um, another Australian actor, actually, who plays my daughter, Siobhan. Um, and we all shared this home and, and, uh, and it, was, it was terrific and it kept us safe. And, you know, I got to do the recycling with, with, with Mike from Neighbours, which was not part of my fantasy i just want you to know and i would remind him of that i'll be the, all the time we're like darling why am i going through the bins with you this was not in my fantasy when i was 11 years old and fell in love with you and neighbors and he was like look i'm sorry it's just that if there's a sardine tin you know in the trash it has to go in the dishwasher i'm like okay that part <laughs> also wasn't in my fantasy <laughs> so it was it was hilarious <laughs> I just interviewed Guy a couple of weeks ago about Las Vermeer, and uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of his anyway. He's very cheeky. I mean, I think that's the thing about him is he's very cheeky. He's got a very, very wry sense of humour. And it did look like... I mean, I, you know, I don't know because I'm not an actor, but I always imagine that if you have history with somebody, if you've worked with them before, it kind of makes the building of relationships easier when you come to a new it, project. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Guy and I, we, we really did have a sort of a, um, a kind of like a, I suppose, a creative shorthand, really. And that, that, that trust as well, you know, it's very rare, really, these days that you can turn to an actor and say, you know, tell me if that one was rubbish, because I want to do it again, you know, just tell me what you think I could do differently or better. And, and it's really, really fun when you have that with an actor, because that's when you then really start to play and, you know, can push each other um, and challenge each other. And, and, and yeah, Guy and I definitely definitely had that because when we did Mildred Pierce together again for HBO in um, in 2010 you know that was a very intense relationship we had to create on screen and again you know we were together for five months or something and uh and 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 we've always stayed friends you know we've our, we share the same birthday so every year without fail we'll send each other a little happy birthday message which is adorable and actually we got to spend our birthday together when we were shooting Mare which was a pretty nice little side note I think I like that <laughs> 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. a sea lizard. Six feet long. Days it took to dig it out, clean it. I was only 11 years old. It's in the British Museum. That one was special. Bassani. I've often heard your reputation discussed in the Geographical Society in London. Is there something you wanted, sir? My wife. She hasn't been at all well of late. She suffers from melancholia. I want her to walk the shoreline with you, learn from you. I'm not looking for an apprentice. I would pay a premium for a private audience. Now, obviously, the other uh, big project of yours that's that's currently available is is Ammonite, which is now out. Um, In this, you're play it's a you know a real life character of of Mary Anning. Obviously, the there's kind of inventions that uh, that Francis Lee has created for the drama. Tell me who Mary Anning is in terms of the way in which you play her. Who is your Mary Anning? So Mary Anning, just to explain who she was, she was very much an unsung hero of paleontology. Um, She lived in the very early 1800s and sadly died in her late 40s of breast cancer, actually. Um, and Mary was responsible for the discovery of the first ichthyosaur. She she discovered the coprolite, which is, for those who don't know, dinosaur poo, its feces. So because of Mary's finds, you know, scientists were then able to establish and understand what dinosaurs actually ate and, and how they lived. Um, but Mary was a woman who never achieved notoriety because she lived in a patriarchal world. And, and geology, of course, was dominated by men, men who were richer than her and probably not as clever, but who would come and buy her finds and and reappropriate them and claim them as their own. So in, in, in Ammonite, we meet Mary at a point in her life where she's really past her prime and living alone with her quite sickly mother in Lyme Regis and st- struggling to get by. And and she meets and falls in love with Charlotte Murchison, played by Saoirse Ronan. And through this very gentle, um, beautiful romantic connection that they form through the work, um, they fall in love. And it, uh, it sort of transforms, really, who, who Mary is, having gone from being quite isolated and, and socially withdrawn um, she experiences some joy in her life um, that she may otherwise never 
have had and it was a it was a very beautiful film to be a part of and I really appreciated this sort of imagined element to her life by virtue of pairing her with a woman as opposed to with a man and um and yeah it's a it's, it's a lovely film there was a lovely statement by Francis Lee after somebody said oh well you know how how how, how can you you've, you've imagined this relationship between these two and he said you know the history of culture sees um basically the straightening out of gay relationships why is it not okay in the case when we actually have no evidence of anything else for us not to imagine that? What exactly is the problem with that? And I thought it was it was very bold and you know of him to to lead on that front foot. The other thing is, you say this thing about the, the discovery of, of the ichthyosaur. There's a there's a lovely scene at the very beginning in which we see the um, the skeleton of the thing. It has a label on which says sea, you know, I think sea lizard, uh, found by Mary Anning. And this the label is sort of taken off tuttingly, and it's replaced with a sign which says ichthyosaurus, mm. you know, presented by host somebody Esquire. And the, in that tiny scene, it tells you kind of everything that you need to know. Is that firstly, she was very young when when that discovery was made, yes. wasn't she? I mean, yeah. this was this was something made very early in well, her life. Well, that's right. I mean, Mary was self taught, and and that was for me, she was a formidable, extraordinary woman because of that fact. You know, she her father was a was an amateur fossil hunter who taught her everything she knew, and he died when uh, he died when Mary was ten years old, and left this sort of I think huge gaping hole in her life because I think they'd had a very close relationship but she found the first ichthyosaur with her brother Joseph actually when um, she was only 11 years old it, t- it took them both over a year to dig it out and everyone locally knew that that was Mary's that was Mary's fossil that she was working on um, but she was always quite um, I think uncomfortable with attention um, she was known actually as lightning Mary she was struck by lightning when she was a baby and she was she was in the arms of a complete stranger, and they were both struck by lightning at some horse fair. The stranger, the woman who was holding her, died, and this baby Mary survived, and she became Lightning Mary. So I think I think prying eyes and um, and sort of scrutiny was something that she never did very well with, and uh, I think it made her much more withdrawn um, than she perhaps otherwise might have been. But. Um, she was an extraordinary, rather uncomplaining woman, I think, um, given everything that she experienced. And you know, she was completely impoverished, a life of absolute poverty. And, and I liked playing a working class um, labourer in that sense. You know, I think often we don't see that in films and the film looks extremely real. You know, you can absolutely see the dirt under the fingernails and, you know, the wrinkles on faces and the grey in the hair and all of those things that I personally really appreciate when I see them on film myself. And uh, yeah, we didn't shy away from any of that with Ammonite. You can feel the cold too. I, f- I found myself actually wrapping a shawl around my shoulders oh, while watching you. it because you, you, <laughs> you can feel the cold. The other thing is the, the 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 figure that she reminded me of slightly at the very. This sounds like a sort of left turn, but when you see her out on the beach, she reminded me of Daniel Day Lewis in the opening section of There Will Be Blood. This kind of imposing, solitary, searching figure who doesn't seem to require or want human interaction. Mm but is completely focused on the thing that they're yeah. doing, which I thought She's, was... Mary, you know, she was utterly self-sufficient. And the, to me, the definition of stoic, and as you say, completely committed, dedicated and focused. And even though she had nothing, she sort of also wanted for nothing too. Very accepting with her lot in life and very, very capable. Um, 
and that the, the, uh, there's an inner strength to her combined with, of course, real fragility, but this sort of hard strength um, that she had to develop, I think, from a young age was was something that sort of informed entirely who, who, she, who she is, who she was for me. They were two young girls living in a world of imagination. I'm going to the fourth world. It's an absolute paradise of music, art, and pure enjoyment. What they had was friendship. What a disgrace you are. Your mother is rather a miserable woman. What they needed was freedom. Do you like your mother? No. What they shared was a secret. Your daughter's been behaving in a rather disturbed manner. What's she done? I think I'm going crazy. I'm sure it's perfectly innocent. The crime that shocked the nation. People die every day. Only the best people fight against all obstacles in pursuit of happiness. Paul thought it up. Aren't you clever? We're not going to be separated. <laughs> I hate you! She's uncontrollable. Based on a true story. It's all frightfully romantic. Heavenly Creatures. Let me ask you something about, uh, as I said, the first time we ever met was back in, uh, well, the only time was back at Radio 1. I came out of Heavenly Creatures in a state of complete, like, I mean, it was it was overwhelming in the same way that the first time I saw Pan's Labyrinth was overwhelming. And I I just love that film, even to this day. Do you do you ever go back to it? Do you ever revisit it? Does it still mean a lot to you? Because when we spoke about it, then it was still sort of rarely recent. And, and you said, yeah, I've, I, but I can't go back and watch it again now because I've I've done. And now I've got to, you know, I don't particularly like going back and watching myself. Do you ever go back and watch did it? Did I say that? You did, because I was talking about, I, yeah. Well, that's the same for me now. I can't go back and watch anything. I can't go back. I can't go well, back and watch go. anything. In fact, there are some. There are the, there are a couple of films I've been in that I've never seen, um, and um, no, I, I, I. We did sit. Now, this is actually a sweet little story. A couple of years ago, um, a couple of years ago, I was filming in Australia. Uh, four or five years ago, um, doing a film called The Dressmaker, and we went directly from there because it was close to Christmas. We thought, oh, let's just go to New Zealand for Christmas and New Year. That'd be an amazing adventure. We ended up actually spending some time there with Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, the director and co-writer of Heavenly Creatures. And and we all sat down and we watched Heavenly Creatures all together. Pete was like, should we just should we just watch it? Should we just like, sit down and do it? And it was kind of an it was an amazing moment. I was with my 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 children, uh, Mia and Joe, who at the time were, uh, let me think, they must have been 16 and and 13. So, you know, good age probably to watch Heavenly Creatures having never seen it. And they they just loved it. But the thing that I that Peter and I both felt very strongly was like, bloody hell. It was a really good movie. It was really terrific, eccentric, classic in in so many ways. And I I felt, I mean, not just immensely proud to be in it, but I also felt so lucky. Like, Mark, that was my first film. I'd done like a bit of telly and like an episode of Casualty before Heavenly Creatures. And for that to be one's first film, you know, what people often don't don't know or, or kind of not necessarily forget, but don't know, is that as a film actor, you know, 
People will spend over a decade playing small roles, the best friend next door, the supporting this and that, and sometimes they'll get cut and it might go straight to video and they'll chip away at a career. And often they'll end up going off and doing something else because it's so hard to maintain a career as an actor. Heavenly Creatures was my first film. And two years later, because of it, I did Sense and Sensibility and because of Sense and Sensibility, I was cast in Titanic. And that is mad. That is mad. That's not supposed to, it's not supposed to happen that way, you know? I mean, and that's where I will use the word lucky. I was lucky that that was my first film and it was Peter Jackson. It's incredible, really. So grateful. I remember some years before that, sitting with Peter Jackson in the top of the, the hotel by the BBC. I was interviewing him for Bad Taste. Oh, my God. And, uh, which is this yeah. fantastic, it was wonderfully scrungy little horror movie that he'd made over the course of four years. And I remember saying to him, you know, how do you get all the squishy noises for all the gore? And he said, it's yogurt. He said, you get, you get yogurt and you put it's it in your hands and you go, you go... <laughs> and I've still got a tape of Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson's going... <laughs> into a microphone. <laughs> oh, God. You know, and just... Just that sheer progress of that to that. And then as you said, even that to Sense and Sensibility and uh, Titanic. I remember you receiving it, one of numerous awards for Titanic. And the phrase you used was, you said, the big boat wins again. <laughs> um, <do> you... <laughs> God, isn't it funny? Where does Titanic sit in your life now? Is it? it... I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think what's, what's lovely about Titanic really is that, well, first of all, it, you know, it opened up. It's freedom of choice for me, you know, which so many actors never, ever get. And and because of that, I have been able to really craft a career that I that has been diverse and interesting. And and, and I've worked with incredible people, continue to learn things, you know, and now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still here. You know, I'm 45 years old now and and I'm still doing this thing that I love. And and, and I do have Titanic, I think, to thank for that. I really do. Um, and where does it sit in my life? You know, I mean, I worked with Jim Cameron again on Avatar and that was absolutely amazing. So that probably also wouldn't have happened had, had we not done Titanic together. But there's a whole other generation of young people now seeing it. You know, I mean, I do the school run and, you know, I notice like the children who are sort of 13, 14, they're like, that's really her. And I'm thinking, well, I've, I've known you <laughs> since you were six, but it's only sort of twigged, <laughs> you know, the sort of penny drops. I'm like, no, I, you know, we did baking together on a Thursday morning. Do you remember when you were six? And they're suddenly like, oh, but we didn't realise. I'm like, it's, very, it's really, it's hilarious. But yeah, it's lovely. I mean, that film, obviously, you know, it, it, it touched the hearts of lots of people. I know it sounds cliched, but it did. And uh, it's, it's incredible to have been part of something like that. What are you? What are you most proud of? You look. I mean, it's an extraordinary career, as you said. Um, obviously, all kickstarted by me meeting you in a cupboard in Radio One in the nineties. I'd like to take credit <laughs> for that. But what are the things that you? What, what are you most proud of? What's your favourite role? And I'm not just saying this because we started this podcast talking about it, but honestly, it's Mayor Sheehan in Mayor of Easttown, and I. I, 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 I almost feel bad for saying that. I feel bad about, you know, people I've worked with in the past and it, it's no disrespect to any of them, but I absolutely, I was consumed by her and I had a love-hate relationship with her because, you know, she kicked me in the pants. I mean, it was really difficult. Um, but I, ha I, I, I miss her. Like, I'm, I, she became almost an alter ego for me, really, truly. Um, 
and uh and does that that doesn't happen no, with other characters no. that you play you're not one of these people that walks out in no, character no no and i and i usually like you know i don't have a system or like way of kind of walking away from a job and going okay well that's that then and i'll go through this this and this process and then it'll all be over and i can just get back to myself you know i just have to kind of like wait for it to evaporate but with mayor genuinely i mean i stopped playing her in december and where we are now end of march and I still like I, I, I miss her. It sounds completely bonkers. But, you know, I think also partly because COVID cut right into the middle. You know, I, I, I had to kind of like keep knitting the stitches of Mare during that downtime. I couldn't sort of stop playing her in my inside of myself. Um, and uh, and I, I really, you know, I, I feel like she, you know, she was mine. It was like me and her against the world for <laughs> however many months I was playing. I know it sounds nuts, but... She has been my my favourite role. Um, she has. Okay. Well, look, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to allow you to choose uh, Mayor as All your right. favourite role on okay. the condition that you that you tell me the answer okay, to this then. next question, which is, and you don't no names no pack drill if not okay. necessary. Are there things that yet are there things that you look back on and you think I wish I hadn't done that or I wasn't great in that or that was the wrong thing? I don't have many that I think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I do have, I do have one, and I'm not going to say what it is. I do have, I do no, have, actually, fine. I sort of have two. I do have like, oh, no, that was a bit. Okay, without, without naming them, tell me what it is about the experiences of them that you, that you don't like. Um, you know, often I think, I have to say, as a, as a parent, you know, there have been times in my life where I, I can't just go to work whenever I want. You know, my family does my family does come first and, you know, we're not staffed up. We run a kind of close little ship and, you know, every job I do is very much a, fa- a family decision. Um, and and I think the jobs that I haven't enjoyed or, or, or do look back and think, oh, I shouldn't really have done that. I can see how I was strategizing too much in my brain thinking, OK, well, you know, kids have got this coming up in the next few years of school. And actually, really, this is my only window. And it's probably only going to be about a five or six week shoot. Nice-ish location. Yeah, it could be a nice holiday. Tick, 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 tick. And I find myself ticking a bunch of kind of willed for boxes. And actually, creatively, it didn't really feel like quite the right thing to have done um so 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 that that that's what that ultimately ultimately does feel like um but i don't i don't i'm not a big i'm not a big believer in 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 regrets um there there aren't anything that i there 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 aren't any films that i i, I regret having said no to for example I, d- I definitely don't have that feeling which is quite odd because there are certainly some things where the people who've ended up playing those roles have gone on to do extraordinary things. But I, st- I still, I'm not, I'm just not like that. I'm like, I'm no, I, well, that, you know. Yeah. Kate, you, uh, I, it goes without saying, you have gone on to do extraordinary <laughs> things, so clearly no, not I'm doing all, those. I'm you know, all right, yeah. I, I, I hate to tell you this, you're doing <laughs> fine. You know, it's, things are going well. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it really like that. That sounds terrible, God. No, no, it didn't. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, no, no. So, okay, so, so what's in the future? What's happening now? You've finished well, uh, Mayor and you're, as you said, you're sort of slightly bereft. But what's next? Well, so so I've actually got really a lot going on. So this amazing thing has kind of happened in my life in the last few years, where I, ha- I have started producing, and and that began with with Mare. You know, I first read the script at the end of 2018, and 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 it, the idea of me being an executive producer came up, and and I really had to take a a, a minute and think, yeah, well, you know. 
it's it's not just a compliment when someone says, oh, you know, we'd like you to be an executive producer. And I'm not one of those people who wants to just do something in name only. That's just not my bag. And I have been very, very collaboratively involved in everything I've done, I'd say, particularly the last decade. And I've learned a lot. You know, I've truly kept my eyes open. You're producing is a very different job to acting, you know. And so I'm not going to go and do that job if I don't know how to do it. So on Mare, I was an executive producer. I am an executive producer. And it, it has been completely brilliant. And actually, I found it was almost better for everyone involved, really, for the crew, for the, for the rest of the cast, to have that person there every day in their space, checking in on them and making sure everyone's all right and, you know, and, and, and behaving appropriately and all of that stuff and getting along. I mean, it, it, was, it was a big deal. Um, and I continue to be involved in the edit, which is still happening now, and that's been amazing. So I've got quite a few things in development. Um, one project that I'm a producer on uh, is, uh, is about Lee Miller, um, a section of her life, um, incredible for those who don't know, um, World War II um, correspondent and, uh, and, and photographer. Um, and that's something that has been in development for about three or four years. You know, films take a long time to put together. And what I will say is that whilst I do feel that there are lots of incredible seismic shifts happening in this industry, one thing remains the same. If you are trying to get a female-driven uh, project funded, you will still have a much harder time than your male counterpart. That is absolutely a fact. And I can't wait for that to change. <laughs> and that's okay, because I can, I can call in favours here, there and everywhere and, and ask people to perhaps work for less than their quote when it comes to finding great crew, etc. Um, but that's not how one always wants to have to do things. And, you know, it still is a struggle, I will say. But so, yeah, so that's something I'm a part of. There's a, there, there is another television thing that I have in development. Um, and so it's a really interesting time. You know, here I am in my mid-40s. And actually, you know, that thing of just being a, 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 an actor has kind of bled out into other job descriptions for me now. And I'm really, really enjoying it and, and learning as I go. And um, and, and it's um, yeah, it's it, it's amazing. You know, I didn't I never really imagined that uh, that I would be so instrumental in the development of my own things um, because I don't like to kind of I don't know follow a trend or anything. And I think we see a lot of people do that. But that sort of started just naturally happening a little bit for me at the moment. But do you do you think do you think that you're helping to change the industry? I mean the industry is changing, albeit at a snail's pace, but is what you're doing helping to change it so that it won't be like this in ten years time? You know, I hope so. I mean one thing I do find myself saying um every now and then um, at the moment is that, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily my generation who are really going to change things. I think it's the generation that are coming up underneath all of us. So, so I think if we're leading mm -hmm. by example and also genuinely, you know, living with integrity and being decent human beings, behaving well and looking out for one another, you know, in this industry, there's a huge amount to be said for that because this younger generation of women, and I'm seeing it with my own daughter, and she's an actress now, and there is a there's a there's a groundedness and a and a and an ease I feel that they have when it comes to approaching the work that it's it feels less kind of oh will they pick me will they pick me of course there's a desperation around it for any young actor but a, but a, 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 there's a confidence that they're joining an industry that perhaps is creating a bit more space for individuality diversity inclusivity than ever before and that i think is going to continue to change and so it's a very exciting time to be someone who can be part of developing projects and really you know 
and really doing it, really hopefully contributing in a meaningful way and making stories about real people, not making films that are, you know, that, that, that have sort of, I think, unrealistic or unattainable ideals that are being put across to the world of women or how women should look or behave or be. Or, that's why I love Mare so much. She's just a hot mess. You know, she's a woman who's juggling a million things and just doing her best and looks in the mirror once in the morning when she brushes her teeth. And well, that's like me, frankly, um, so, so like most people I know. <laughs> well, look, that's a, that's a very good and positive note to end on. Thanks ever so much. It's been a real pleasure talking you to you. I hope it's not another 28 years before the oh next time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, please, God. And congratulations on, on I, I, I think people will love, uh, will love Mary. So congratulations. Thank Kate Winsett, thank, thank you very Mark. much. Thank you. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kate Winslet. Ammonite is available on a range of streaming services now, and Mayor of Easttown has seven episodes which will air weekly on Sky Atlantic from Monday the 19th of April. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, and why not visit our Patreon page, which has loads and loads of video extras. Thanks for watching. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.